This morning, brothers and sisters, I may open God's word with you in the Old Testament, in the book of Exodus. God willing, I'll also be in your midst leading worship next Sunday, so I thought to give some attention to some of the material in the first couple of chapters in the book of Exodus. Today we'll read Exodus chapter 1. Exodus 1, which you find on page 45 of Bibles that may be available in the pew. After we've heard from God's word, we'll sing in response Psalm 43, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. And if you're able, we'll do that standing. Hear the word of our God in Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women, and see them on the birth stool. If it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live.
The text for the sermon of this morning is taken from the passage we read together, Exodus chapter 1. We're going to use the verses 7 through the first part of verse 10 as our window into the passage. I'd like to read that with you once again, Exodus 1, 7 through 10a. Where our text reads, But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. After the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing in response Psalm 105, stanzas 1, 3, 4, and 9. <clears throat> Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, does it surprise you that to see that the book of Exodus begins with nothing but names. Jacob and his 12 sons. Joseph is even mentioned twice. We come across Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the slave drivers, the midwives, Shifra and Pua, and the Hebrew women. Is this a fitting opening for a book that has the Lord God as its author? Yes, is it, a fitting, is it fitting that God barely gets a mention? Really, he seems quite absent from the activity. We only, tend to, we only read of man's actions. Is that not strange? Especially since this too is God's word, God's self-revelation. Well, on the one hand, you'd be quite right to think that. This chapter is all about people. Interestingly, the Hebrew title of the book is, And These Are the Names. Those are the first words of the book as well. But the reason it has this title and the reason all these names show up is that God's people are important to him. Yet there's still more to it than that. We have these names and this opening chapter because God's word is reminding us of how God is a promise-keeping God. If we listen carefully enough to the chapter, all these names and all of these activities accent God's faithfulness. That's the concern of the chapter, yes, of the whole book. As we pointed out a moment ago, it's a book that literally starts out with the word, and. And that's not an unusual way of starting a book if you know it's part of a series. Exodus is merely a continuation of Genesis. It simply carries on with the story. 
In other words, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is revealing himself further. God had already spoken in paradise of the chosen seed, the seed of the woman, the people of God through whom the Redeemer would come. That theme of the chosen seed is now simply worked out further. God is still busy dealing with the people who matter to him. Fulfilling his promises in the face of opposition. He does so faithfully. And as we will see this morning, he also does so often quietly. Not only then, still today. We come to hear about that in God's word. And we come to also see that God's quiet, steady faithfulness in the sacrament of holy baptism. And so I bring you God's word this morning. God quietly tends to his covenant promises to his people. And we see this in a couple of ways. First, Israel's exceptional expansion in Pharaoh's land. Secondly, Israel's excruciating oppression under Pharaoh's hand. So we first see that God's... Covenant faithfulness extends to Israel during her exceptional expansion in Pharaoh's land. Exodus 1 verse 1 doesn't quite begin where Genesis 50 verse 26 left off with Joseph's death. Our chapter begins rather with the genealogy that takes us 70 years earlier. It takes us to Genesis 46 where Jacob and his family arrive in Egypt. Actually, the first six words of Exodus 1 and Genesis 46, verse 8, are exactly the same. In other words, we have now in Exodus 1 some information that we need to hear once more. Moses resumes the theme of the descendants of Jacob by summarizing how he and his family came to Egypt. Seventy persons in total. It's not all that much to speak about. I remember this lot of people came to Egypt from Canaan. They came from the land that the Lord God had promised to Abraham and his descendants. In verse 6 then we read, now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. The generation that had worked the land of promise, that had bought and sold livestock there, that had enjoyed something of the future land that they would inherit later forever, that generation had passed away. That means no one from the generation that followed had been in the promised land. Well, now... Though they were away from the promised land, that of course didn't mean that they were away from their covenant God as well. It's not as if his interest in them had diminished or disappeared altogether. It's not like he forgot all about his promises. No, not at all. For that very small family of no more than 70 people grew by leaps and bounds. Verse 7, we read... But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly, 
They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. <clears throat> Times have changed drastically. In verse 1, they were called the household of Jacob. Now in verse 7, they've become a people. It's as if our text is going above and beyond to say that the people of Israel flourished in Egypt. The words describing this exceptional expansion are heaped up on each other. They were fruitful, increased greatly, multiplied. And it keeps going. The same terminology later on in the, in the chapter. Verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread about. Verse 20 as well, the people multiplied and grew very strong. <clears throat> Now, this might sound a little over the top. Like Moses is obsessed with the birth rate of a minority group. But nothing could be further from the truth in our chapter. Yes, in our text, our Lord God is quietly revealing something wonderful. And we need to take a few steps back to see that. Our minds have to go back to all those texts in Genesis from chapter 12 onward. Several times in that first book of the Bible, God repeatedly assured Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob of his covenant promises. To Abraham, Genesis 12, verse 2, God said, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you. Chapter 15, when God established his covenant with Abraham, verse 5, he said, Look toward heaven Number the stars if you are able to number them. So shall your offspring be. He said it again. Chapter 22, verse 17 to Abraham. Repeatedly, God gave his promise. Also to Isaac, recorded in 26, verse 4. Chapter 35, verse 11. Jacob as well. 28, verse 14. You can see it recur again and again. Throughout Genesis, God repeatedly makes his promises and addresses them actually not only to the patriarchs, but through them also to his covenant people. He, God, was going to give them a family. And the only way for a family to happen is by birth. <clears throat> That's precisely what we have in this chapter before us. You notice that God never talks quietly. He works in faithfulness to his great promises. He's fulfilling his promise to the patriarchs in giving, to give them a seed. And we see that, verse 7, 12, 20. This is what Moses is trying to impress upon us. Look with your eyes. See how God is faithful. He's always bringing his promises to pass. For we may not, Scripture does not allow to think even for a moment that this great uptick in numbers was simply a result of Israel's fertility. Psalm 105 verse 24, we'll see afterwards. The Lord made his people very fruitful and made them stronger than their foes. God is faithful even though he never ever talks once 
in this chapter. You never read anything like the Lord said, Behold, I'm about to fulfill the promises I made to your forefathers. No. But his actions speak plenty loud enough. From promise all the way to fulfillment. From acorn to acorn tree. It was all the work of the God of heaven and earth. He is true to his word that he gave to his people. Actually, it helps and it's appropriate for us to cast our eyes back still further in God's word from those texts we quoted. We need to go back all the way to some of the first words in scripture. For actually, some of the words of Exodus 1 verse 7 echo one of God's earliest promised blessings at creation. In Genesis 1 verse 28. There he gave that well-known blessing and mandate to Adam and Eve be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Well, that blessing and that command from the creation of the world, God was still busy with while his people were in a land not their own. They were filling up a land not their own. They were being fruitful and becoming exceptionally numerous to the point where the land of Goshen was becoming too small for them. The blessing of paradise had come. Here is the beginning of that full number, that multitude God promised that no one can count. The Lord, in a quiet and yet powerful way, was being faithful to his word. So he's quiet, but he's just as faithful to his promises in Exodus 1. He's just as dynamic and powerful in bringing about his plans in far less than ideal conditions. Oh, what does this all say about our lives today? How are you looking for God's faithfulness to his promises in your life? I think we can well imagine that an Israelite living during that time in Egypt would have struggled some with God's faithfulness to his promises. Those promises of a great nation, of inheriting the promised land rather than slaving away in Pharaoh's land. But that Israelite, he had visual reminders around him. Children. Exceedingly numerous amounts of children were all around. Exodus 12 verse 37 says that when Israel departed from Egypt, there were about 600,000 men plus their wives and children. From 70 to at least two and a half times as much as 600,000. There was an explosion of growth. That's what the average Israelite could see. He could see God's promises in the tents around him, which were bursting at the seams with little ones. He had visual reminders of the promises of God to Abraham and his descendants. He could see God's faithfulness continually in the land, in foreign land. Expansion was happening. 
in Pharaoh's land. That would have been so telling to the Israelite. Our God is busy fulfilling his promise of a bustling and swarming people in a land that doesn't even belong to us. In difficult life circumstances. You might be currently struggling to see the faithfulness of God because it is quiet. You're not seeing it in any kind of spectacular or dramatic way. What's God's purpose with this? He wants you to be busy trying to discover where he is busy with his promises. He wants you with the eyes of faith to have the joy of recognizing it, of discovering again and again his faithfulness. For there is evidence in your life of God's faithfulness. Oh, he doesn't necessarily create all sorts of fanfare to let us know he's still around, that he's still faithful. But he doesn't need to either. We have our text as cue for how to consider whether God is still active today. Like the Israelites who could look back and reflect on God's promises from the beginning of the world. So we can look back and remind ourselves of all that God has promised us. And done for us in Christ. That's where this bustling group of people was headed toward. The God who revealed himself in Genesis as the God of the covenant already then was looking ahead to Bethlehem, to Golgotha, to the empty tomb. And that's then where each of us can look day by day when we ponder or look for God's faithfulness. <clears throat> so when we think, I wish... I could know if I'm right with God, or I wish I could know for sure that God has provided me with his spirit, that God loves me and has his favor resting upon me. I wish I could know for sure that I really belong to him. Why can't he tell me? Take a step back. Remember all that God promised to you at your baptism. That's why we have baptism one of the reasons to remind us in our insensitivity and weakness as we confess in the belgian confession that god is faithful <clears throat> that he still loves us that along with you today noah carson also is an heir of god and co-heir of jesus christ and remember that god is faithful to his promises he was faithful to Israel. He's faithful to his church today. He's never changed. <clears throat> he still today quietly tends to his covenant promises in the lives of his children. He's your father who does what is best for you. Not only when times are good, when his promises might seem a little more visible, more within your grasp. <clears throat> but also in times of adversity and struggle. Well, that's our second point, where we see God is faithful 
in Israel's excruciating oppression under Pharaoh's hand. In verse 8, Moses writes, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. The blessing God gave of extraordinary expansion was met with hatred from Pharaoh. This is a direct fruit of the enmity the Lord had announced in paradise between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. (coughs) So here we have a change in Egypt, a change of regime. We have a new king, a new pharaoh. There's always been speculation as to who this one might be. We simply don't know whether it was John or Ramses or Thutmose II. The author's not concerned with that. He's more concerned with what he did. Now this new king did not know Joseph, our text says. That doesn't mean that he was not brought up to speed on what Joseph did in Egypt, in Egypt's history. No, when our text says that he did not know Joseph, that means he refused to acknowledge what Joseph had done for his country. He didn't care about the fact that Egypt was delivered from starvation as a result of Joseph interpreting Pharaoh's dreams. Now, this king might have been the first one in a change of dynasty. He only cared about doing things his way. These Israelites, they were simply some worthless foreigners whose numbers were becoming too unwieldy. And so he finds a solution. He introduces a new regime and a new policy against the Israelites. No longer did they have the protection that they enjoyed when Joseph was in charge of Pharaoh's livestock. He rips up the past agreements. He says in verses 9 and 10, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. These Israelites are multiplying. They might become greater than we are, and when war breaks out, they might join our enemies and fight against us. So let's enslave them. Let's give them excruciating, back-breaking labor. Let's make them work extremely hard so that when they come home at night to their wives, they have nothing left. In this chapter, his intentions become clear. He wants to break the strength of the Israelites physically, numerically, reproductively. They won't have the energy at night to try and have children. They won't be able to multiply. Their fruitfulness must be stopped. That's what the new king enforces. Again, in all of this, God appears to be absent. He doesn't intervene. Pharaoh's the one who's doing all the talking. God does not seem to be actively engaged with the activities. 
But of course, we've seen already that our text points to God's faithfulness. How is that in the case of verses 8 and following? How here is God faithful to his word? Well, we need to recall something else that the Lord promised to Abraham hundreds of years before the events of our text. Genesis 15, verse 13, we read, Then the Lord said to Abraham, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. So now, not only Israel's exceptional growth, but even, even their excruciating oppression reveals God's faithfulness. Their oppression is the fulfillment of his word in Genesis 15. This was all planned. There's something else that is noteworthy as well. God sometimes allows his people to be afflicted, and we can't always figure out why, at least for the moment. But here, what is so remarkable is that Pharaoh, in oppressing God's people, in enslaving them, is actually accomplishing something he's got no clue about. Pharaoh and his people are carrying out God's will without being aware of it. They are fulfilling God's promise that he gave to Abraham so, so long ago. They didn't know about Joseph, didn't certainly know about Abraham. Pharaoh thought he was big. Israel was puny. He figured he was going to crush them for his own sake, enslave them for his own purposes. But in the end... Pharaoh himself is nothing more than a pawn in God's hand. He himself is slave to God's will. Well, isn't that remarkable? We see in subsequent history as well that there are tyrants, kings, prime ministers, presidents who think they can move nations, build their own kingdoms, If they only knew what was really going on, that God is busy with his own purposes which can never be thwarted. The early church certainly recognized that this is how God works. They prayed that way in Acts 4, verse 27 and 28. Shortly after Pentecost, the church was faced with a crisis. And so they prayed, Sovereign Lord, In this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. It was God who in the secret of his faithfulness used them as instruments. They were on Satan's side against God. Indeed, congregation, the one who sits enthroned in heaven laughs. He laughed at those meticulous plans of Pharaoh. (coughs) We read in verse 12, the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread 
of the people of Israel. Still, there's a mystery here in that God often fulfills his promises via the road of suffering. In wisdom, he chooses to do it that way. Again, we can see that foretold way back in Genesis 15, where God says to Abraham that his descendants will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. (coughs) And then in verse 14, he reveals, but I will punish the nation that they serve as slaves. And afterward, they will come out with great possessions. Excuse me. (coughs) To reach freedom, first God's people must pass through suffering. And that happened. For even though Israel increased, the Egyptians didn't give up their oppression. It became more forceful and ruthless. They made the the Israelites' lives bitter. The end of verse 14, in all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. (coughs) (coughs) Satan, you see, was on the attack trying to bring down the descendants of Abraham and get them to doubt God's promises as they suffered. And Satan continued, Pharaoh ups the oppression. He instructs the midwives to kill all newborns who are boys. Terrible. So terrible that the midwives choose not to go along with his demand. Once again, God is laughing at Pharaoh's plans. He foils them. These midwives, these midwives don't fear Pharaoh. They fear God. So they disobey. And when that plan fails, verse 22 records, Pharaoh orders all his people throw into the Nile every boy that is born. This includes Israelites as well which means no more future for God's people, which means no Messiah would come. Yes, Satan was on the offensive. He was active to destroy the church. It makes you wonder whether in such brutal circumstances it was still wise to have children. Well, if you keep reading in chapter 2, Israelites still had children. God again laughed because his plan could not be thwarted. Moses, soon to be born to a godly Levite couple. You see in Exodus 1 the enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. God was busy in the background fulfilling his promises. Through suffering comes glory. and Israel could hold on to that. Sure, there must have been times where they cried out, Where are you, Lord? Why don't you deliver us? But they could think back to God's promises in Genesis 15. 
if ever they thought there was, that there was no longer, they were no longer under God's sovereign protection, God's promise would have reassured them otherwise. Everything is all right. Our God has brought us down here. He led our forefathers and still us today. That wouldn't necessarily make their suffering any easier. But God's promise made it right. That's a New Testament teaching as well. In John 16, Christ made it clear to his disciples that he would soon be leaving them. Then he says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And Christ himself became the greatest example of the suffering and the darkness we must face before our freedom. He suffered all his life and was nailed to a cross. And when he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's when Satan thought he had won. That's when he thought he had the last laugh. But he didn't. For Christ crushed Satan. He rose again, conquering death once for all. And even though Christ has won that decisive victory, yeah, hardship still remains for us. But our adversities then indeed are not evidence that God has forsaken us. Rather, they are evidence that he is so consistent with his people. What a comfort our text is for us. It's a comfort as we grapple with the struggles of our life. When we wonder if Satan has the upper hand over the church. When we consider also in our personal life, the life of our family, why we sometimes get stuck in a rut in our relationship with the Lord. We can lose sight that in the battle against sin, the seed of the woman won. He's not absent. He's busy at God's right hand as king over the earth. Our triumph over sin and Satan and struggle is already a guarantee in Christ. For in all things we are more than conquerors. Because God is faithful to his promises. He's busy with us. We have to listen for his faithfulness. We have to look beyond the outward appearances of daily life. And when we do, we come to see more and more that God's glory shines all the brighter against any trial. Satan wants us on our side. He wants to destroy the church and he wants us to help. But we have our faithful God on our side. As we will sing, the prince of darkness grim We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That's the word of our God. That's the promise of deliverance. That's what we need to cling to by Christ's spirit in the fight against sin. Take hold of God's good promises by faith signified and sealed to you today and trust 
and delight in his quiet faithfulness. Amen.